This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with human rights advocate and barrister Geoffrey Robertson QC. Geoffrey joined me to discuss his new book, Bad People and How to Be Rid of Them, a Plan B for Human Rights. The Plan B that Geoffrey outlines is something called Magnitsky Laws. These are national laws now in place in 31 countries around the world, and they're one way to deter and punish individual actors who infringe upon human rights and commit crimes against humanity. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR FM with me, Amy Mullins, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome onto the program Jeffrey Robertson QC, who needs no introduction, but I will give a very brief one. Jeffrey Robertson is a lawyer, he's a trial counsel and human rights advocate, among many other roles that he's had, including being a UN war crimes judge and a counsel in many Old Bailey trials. Jeffrey Robertson QC is also known to many Australians for the work that he does in his books, uh, one of which we'll be discussing today and one that's also very well known potentially to you being Crimes Against Humanity and also for his work on television and radio, including Jeffrey Robertson's Hypotheticals, which I'm sure so many of you listening would have seen in your time. And the book that we're going to be discussing today is Jeffrey Robertson's brand new one, just been released. It's called Bad People and How to Be Rid of Them, a Plan B for Human Rights. And it's out through Vintage, which is an imprint of Penguin. So I welcome Jeffrey now, who is currently in Australia. And hi there, Jeffrey. Hello, Amy. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. Not at all. Now, this book, I have had the absolute delight to read through it all, and it is a very compelling book, um, beautifully written as always. But I do want to get into some of the nitty gritty of these issues because there is a lot of complexity and detail, and I think it uh, certainly is helpful to get into that and to draw out some of the issues that arise. But first of all, let's set the scene. Given you've worked in international law and also human rights for so long, and you know, this is an area that you've spoken about and written about in great depth. I'm really interested in this idea that we've had a plan A and you take us through the history of international law and human rights in the 20th century, for example, and even prior. um, And you talk about the Nuremberg trial as being a really pivotal point in our international law. I wonder if you could share with us this idea of the Plan A and what the Plan A has been in terms of dealing with people who have committed atrocities and crimes against humanity. Well, the Nuremberg trial was a turning point. It was the creation of international criminal law to put those guilty of crimes against humanity, the Nazi leaders in that case, uh, into custody. And so that was the iconic beginning of international criminal law. But of course, it was succeeded by the Cold War and things got pretty frozen in the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States. And it wasn't for many years that the legacy of Nuremberg was discovered again. It was used for international criminal courts in 
the Balkans in uh, that terrible conflict in Eastern Europe. It was used to deal with genocide in Rwanda. It was used to deal with appalling atrocities in Sierra Leone. It was my privilege to be the first president of the UN War Crimes Court in Sierra Leone, which put some very bad people in prison. Charles Taylor, for example, is still there. So it looked as though at the end of the 20th century that we had come to a plan A. We delivered on the Nuremberg precedent because we had an international criminal court set up and it started to operate in 2002 and we thought it would deal with malefactors. But that unfortunately hasn't been the case. In 18 years, it's only had a few convictions, mainly of Congolese warlords. I think it's still significant and it's really something that we have to keep up our sleeve. But the problem is it hasn't worked because international law has no enforcement and the Security Council of the United Nations, which is repository of the duty to maintain human rights, has failed because of the polaxed position of America, Russia, and China. It's impossible, for example, to put Assad on trial. I think one of the saddest sights I've seen in human rights history was in 2011, with all the demonstrators in Damascus holding up their banners, Assad to the Hague. Well, we had created too many expectations because Assad was never going to go to the Hague because Russia, which needed a seaport on the Mediterranean in Syria, protected him and vetoed British and other attempts to uh, put him there. So plan A is faltering. It can't work when the Security Council is polaxed. So international law is not going to serve the purpose. And we have to look at enforceable law, at national law. And this is the idea behind what are called Magnitsky laws, which are targeted sanctions against abusers of human rights and those involved in serious corruption. Targeted mm. sanction, meaning that we stop them entering our countries, our open societies, our democratic countries. We assert our values. We take their property, seize their assets, and don't allow their children into our schools and universities or their parents into our uh, hospitals or or the people themselves into our casinos where they generally like to play. So they don't go to prison, but it is a method of deterring others from behaving similarly, and it is a form of punishment.
Well, I think it is an inspired idea given the arguments you make for it and how it's already been operating. You show how it's been quite effective in a number of ways, and we will get to that in just a moment. But I wanted to dwell on one particular issue before we jump into that, and that was what you raised early on in the book, saying that the International Criminal Court, as you say, has been poleaxed and, quote, it exemplified the problem of a court that is dependent upon international law, not just for its principles, which are fine but for its powers. And you had quoted later in the book the fact that France and Britain have not used their veto on the Security Council for 30 years, but in the last five years, Russia has wielded it 14 times, China five and America twice. And you also note that more often these superpowers only need to threaten behind the scenes to use it and the initiative proposed will be withdrawn. I wonder given you would have observed these issues going to the Security Council for a number of years, has anything particularly changed to make uh, these countries more and more protective of their citizens and more and more likely to prevent transparency and accountability through these forums? Well, there were periods, and I think the last one was when they agreed, the last time there was agreement was over Gaddafi and uh, preventing him from attacking the citizens of Benghazi, and that was back in 2011. Since then, there have been a determination by all three of those major powers to stop international justice, except in very small and friendless countries. And I think it is probably, there was a period where things were very hopeful in the 1990s. And uh, there was agreement on setting up war crimes courts to deal with the horrors of the Balkans. China sent judges, Russia sent judges, you know, it was, there was a general end of 20th century determination to deal with these people. But that has fizzled out over the last 10 years. And so we have a situation where international law, except in respect to minor players, is pretty unenforceable. Well, it does sound like there clearly needs to be another option, and you have just briefly outlined what that other option is. But for those who perhaps haven't been following this issue, and particularly the story of Sergei Magnitsky, I wonder if you could share with us where this law really originated from, and obviously, in particular, the advocacy of a certain person by the name of Bill Browder. Yeah, well, it started with Sergei Magnitsky, and back in 2009-2010, he was a Russian, but he wasn't a dissident in any way. He was a tax lawyer, and as part of his work in Moscow, he discovered a fraud on his client's company. He was the client of Bill Browder, who was an American businessman, and uh, he loyally blew the whistle on it, went to the authorities, but the authorities were the same ones who were involved in the fraud, and they arrested him, threw him into prison. He was ill, and they denied severe judges, denied him bail. Negligent doctors didn't treat him, 
and eventually he was beaten to death, like George Floyd, but with no one watching, no cameras, like most people are tortured and beaten to death if they are behind the high walls of a prison. And uh, Bill Browder was an extraordinary man. I acted for him in that time, and he went to America and persuaded John McCain and then Barack Obama to support a law that would commemorate his faithful lawyer. And so the first Magnitsky Act was passed in 2012, and it targeted sanctions on the lickspittal judges, on the negligent doctors and the corrupt police. Well, in 2016, Barack Obama increased it, made the global Magnitsky Act, enabling them to sanction human rights violators anywhere in the world. That was followed by Canada, and then by Britain, and then by the 27 European countries. So at the moment, we have 31 open societies which have just erected Magnitsky laws. And an Australian a committee of the Australian Parliament uh, had hearings last year and strongly recommended that we should have one too. And that will be debated in the next couple of months in Parliament. Indeed. Whether we should become the 32nd democracy to adopt a targeted sanctions law for those who are either guilty as perpetrators of human rights abuses or of aiding and abetting them or by uh, involvement in serious corruption. Yes, and you certainly have also highlighted the various differences and limitations of some of these laws that um, have already been enacted in countries, as you say, like the United States, Canada, the United Kingdom, the European Union. And there are some variations, but there's also some commonalities. And one you certainly highlight is the issue around, I guess, the process of finding or identifying people who should be listed and engaging NGOs in that process. But of course, it does seem to be very much embedded into government as a government process in these countries. And then also tied to that, the ability of the person who might be listed under this law to then challenge it if they believe they have evidence to contradict what the government believes. Could you share with us that real point, the sticking point that you identified in needing to, I guess, preserve human rights within this law, not just by identifying perpetrators, but also to ensure that we get the right ones? Yes, we're at an early stage with Magnitsky laws, which is why I wrote the book. It was the first book on the subject. And I hope there'll be more because we've got to look at how to roll them out. One problem is that they are decisions by government ministers. Invariably, the foreign minister or secretary of state. And obviously, to have the fullest information, there should be a filtering process. There should be an independent body that sits and hears evidence and recommends to the minister, because ultimately the government has to approve the decision. But it's important to allow 
organizations like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty and the actual groups that represent Uyghurs and Rohingyas and so on to have some say in the process. Now, the Australian Parliamentary Committee has recommended that there be an independent body of experts which would analyze, if possible, publicly the evidence against particular people and companies and make recommendations to the minister so it would be transparent. At the moment, in Britain, it's not transparent. There is no process of that sort. In America, it is more transparent because they do allow human rights bodies to make submissions, but there is no hearing process. So that's one way in which I think the Australian proposals are actually an improvement on uh, some of the other systems. Well, you do say if adopted, these recommendations would give Australia the best Magnitsky law to date. So it would be nice for Australia to lead on human rights in something, because we certainly Mm. have our own issues here in Australia with refugees and First Nations peoples. And that's another thing you do raise is that perhaps it will put pressure on Australia to ensure that we're not being hypocritical when applying these kind of lists and um, applying high standards to people. You also raised the point of the burden of proof or standard of proof being that of an equivalent of the civil standard of proof. Do you think that that is working well in terms of the evidence that is garnered and collected so far in terms of the people who've been caught up in these laws in the 31 countries that are using them? Well, I think it's very important to understand the difference in criminal law and perhaps women will understand this because when they make a complaint of rape, very rarely, or sexual assault, and it goes to a jury, the jury can't convict unless it's satisfied beyond reasonable doubt. And that's a very high standard. And that's why so many rape cases end up in not brought or acquittaled. And I would like to see, as a way of helping women in the present, to have an organization that funds them to bring civil actions, because civil actions are decided on the balance of probabilities, more likely than not. And although you can't put people in prison as a result of a civil action, You can give damages, you can bankrupt the bastard, if you like. And so uh, that is one satisfying result. And I think if a lot of cases of assault and domestic violence and so on were dealt with on the balance of probabilities, which is the standard we use in everyday life, what is most likely, I think there would be a lot more satisfaction and a lot more justice. One of the problems with international criminal law is that we apply the burden of proof beyond reasonable doubt. And that's one reason why some people who are undoubtedly guilty have been acquitted. And uh, it's, uh, it's better, I think, to proceed on 
the balance of probabilities, because that's a standard which is commonsensical, which people can understand. At the moment, the Americans proceed on the basis of credible evidence. And that's not enough. <laughs> credible evidence sometimes turns out to be incredible. <laughs> so I'd like to see uh, a standard of uh, on the balance of probabilities being the standard for procedure. And the procedure is not punishment in the sense of throwing them in jail because we've got no power, but it is a standard that is uh, capable of being used to apply sanctions. Well, one particular issue that I've been thinking about with these laws, and it's certainly been weighing on my mind, and you address it in this book, is the fact that a lot of countries are reluctant to list heads of states and their partners because they have a misunderstanding about sovereign or head of state immunity. And I can think of two very clear examples and ones that you raise in the book, one being the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, which the United States intelligence has deemed to be ordered or authorised by the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, and obviously carried out by people from Saudi Arabia at the consulate in Turkey. And then another example being the United Arab Emirates Crown Prince, Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum. And anyone following that would have seen uh, Princess Latifa's videos over a number of years saying that she and her sisters had been detained unfairly and kidnapped and tortured. So I wondered if you could address that because you do say that listing Mohammed bin Salman is a test for Magnitsky laws and the US has so far failed in that and as well as Britain and Canada. Yes, that's certainly true. Uh, ironically, Britain, Canada and the US have listed everyone else. They've listed the prince's assistant who went with the mission, planned it. They've listed the doctor who sawed him up. Uh, They've listed the other thugs and, and associates and the consul, but they haven't listed Mr. Big. Now, when he was asked about this by Bob Woodward, Donald Trump said, I saved his ass, uh, which <laughs> is what he meant for keeping him off the Magnitsky list. I think that in time, as we got more used to these lists, as we have a coordinated system for imposing them, I think we'll have the gumption to list people who are powerful and list people whom we see as our natural allies. And in the case of MBS, of course, uh, it's his wealth his oil wealth and purchases of billions of dollars worth of weapons that gives him a certain immunity. So, as I say, these are early days. At the moment, he's escaped, but I'm not sure that he won't be listed by Biden in the future. Well, it's interesting because obviously those two examples are people who have a huge amount of wealth and interest and enjoyment in countries in Europe and also the UK. And 
obviously beyond there, but they certainly do have strong holdings. And you have mentioned earlier about freezing assets, about cancelling visas and banning entry for certain people, not just for those individuals, but also their family members. You point out, and something I had been thinking about is surely there needs to be, I guess, some coordination between countries so that if the EU puts them on their list, then that person who's been identified will not just move all of their assets over to London, for example, in the UK. Yes, it's very important. It's also reason why it's important for Australia to have an act, because otherwise it will become a dumping ground for dirty money. Uh, the, the power of Magnitsky legislation, even though it's not international law based, can be extraordinary. You look at, uh, I tell the story of Carrie Lam, you know, the satrap of Hong Kong, busy denying democracy. She was listed by the Americans. The American Treasury stopped her using her credit cards, and she complained bitterly that even those credit cards drawn on Hong Kong banks she couldn't use and she was having to take her salary in cash. And her salary mm. amounted to five million Hong Kong dollars, and she was almost taking it home in a wheelbarrow, and it was cluttering up her house. So that gave a laugh to everyone on social media who were victims of her assault on democracy. But it does show the power of US Treasury sanctions. We want to make use of that, obviously, for coordinated action by Australia. And you also say that it's important for non-Western states to also join up, and you did identify Japan, but also in the book Singapore as another uh, city-state that should really consider jumping on board. Yes, I think it's important that Magnitsky laws not be confined, as they are at the moment, to what I call the white West. They should actually encompass other countries, uh, particularly the members of the Commonwealth, like Malaysia and India, should be involved in the network. Jeffrey, in terms of your insight into this area, given that you have spent so long in the COVID lockdown writing this book, You've obviously also have colleagues who've been advocating on this issue as well. Where do you think there are the brightest spots? You've said Australia is one of those, but you do mention in the book areas where the Magnitsky law has been effective in providing a deterrent and or a punishment for acts that perpetrators, individuals have made. Are there any particular success stories that you're heartened by? Yes, I think even the use of Magnitsky laws against the company, it's a really a parastatal in China, which sells to the world the cotton that is produced by slave labor, by Uyghur slave labor, has had some interesting ramifications because what a Magnitsky targeting process does is to name and blame and shame those who are attacking or destroying human rights. And it's interesting that not only is China 
losing a lot of money because Western brands are no longer purchasing their cotton. But um, it's had this knock-on effect and Adidas and Nike and all the big fashion firms have been reluctant to source their cotton from this parastatal. And that's important. They realize that they're going to be damned in the West. The only firm so far that's insisted it will keep buying slave labor cotton is Hugo Boss, which is ironic because, of course, Hugo Boss made uniforms for the Nazis for the concentration camps. But I think it's going to get an enormous blowback. So uh, all the other firms have ceased dealing with this parastatal. So, you know, it has consequences and it is Magnitsky laws enable those consequences to be brought home, not just to the individuals that are sanctioned, but to companies that do business with them in Western countries. And um, you do quote Boris Nemtsov, who was Mm. an opposition leader in um, Russia before he was assassinated. He said, you will only stop Putin assassinating enemies in the UK if you stop his oligarch friends from sending their children to Eton, which um, certainly rang home and (laughs) makes a lot of sense. Yes, it was so true. And it encapsulated, I think, uh, poor old uh, Navalny said something similar. He said it's so important for Europe to have a Magnitsky law. So all of Putin's oligarch friends, instead of mooring their super yachts in Monaco, can moor them in the lovely harbours of Belarus, which, of course, is landlocked. Yes, exactly. Jeffrey, just to finish this conversation, you are obviously prolific in your writing and you cover so many different topics. Your last book, Who Owns History, certainly resonated and it seems to have had some effect and I'm sure it's not the only thing, but I did see in the news just recently that Germany is to become the first country to hand back the Benin bronzes that were looted by British soldiers in 1897 from Nigeria. So I just wanted to get your take on that, given that you'd really considered that issue in so much depth. Yes, I wrote a book a couple of years ago called Who Owns History, which argued that the 19th century colonial plunder, it really was terrible. The British army, the French army, the German army, they went into Africa and they killed so many men, women and children and looted. They did the same with China, looted so much of their cultural property and it's in museums and it should be returned. The British Museum is the largest receiver of stolen property in the world. So it began with my view about the Parthenon marbles which were ripped off the walls of this wonderful temple by Lord Eldon in 1802. I believe they should go back to the museum in Greece, which has been built for them. And so should other stolen property, including a very iconic bark shield, which you'll find in the British Museum, which was dropped by one of the Aborigines 
who was shot at by Captain Cook when he landed at Botany Bay in April 1770. And for all, he was an amazing explorer. It was a disgraceful act to shoot at the Aborigines who were on the shore. There was no good reason. And indigenous people's legend say the man subsequently died from his bullet wounds. And he dropped the shield, that's for sure. And it was picked up and taken back on the endeavor. And it's displayed in a little small and cabinet in the British Museum. And uh, it means nothing to people who see it there. And it should be brought back to Australia and exhibited. If we had a, an indigenous culture museum, uh, it would take pride of place. It's yes. quite iconic. The first shot fired in anger by white invaders and followed by 60,000 deaths from settler violence, from alcohol and disease that uh, those settlers brought. So, you know, you, it's meaningful to Australians, but it's not meaningful where it is in the British Museum. It seems that the British Museum is still quite reticent to uh, give up many of its objects. It, uh, it has an excuse because the law prevents it, British law prevents the British Museum from parting with any of its stolen property. Mm. So it's up to Parliament and uh, this government is not willing to do the right thing. Colonial mentality that it has. Indeed. And of course, there are a number of other colonial countries, Germany included, um, and its history in Africa. But it is nice to at least see that uh, the goods that they bought that were stolen will start to go back in some small areas of art. But, um... too, President Macron took the lead, said we should not be holding the stolen property. It should go back mm. to inspire the people whose ancestors made it. So France is actually sending back a lot of its uh, Benin bronzes and some of the work from Dahomey, the masks that inspired Picasso. Mm. Well, that's really wonderful to hear. Geoffrey, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. And thank you for writing the first book on the Magnitsky Laws. It is a fantastic book and I've learned a great deal from it. And I do hope that people can pick it up and that they might be able to see you in Melbourne when you come here, I believe on Saturday, the 22nd of May, you'll be um, yes. giving a talk. I'll be performing in Jeff's Shed. <laughs> as if it were my own. <laughs> I think it's fair game. You can call it Jeffrey's Shed for the night. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you so much, Jeffrey Robertson QC. The book is Bad People and How to Be Rid of Them, A Plan B for Human Rights. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.